For God. For country. For truth. For justice. For the Republic. You're listening to the Powder Monkey Podcast on PirateInfoWars.com. Welcome to episode 29 of the Powder Monkey Podcast. This episode I've decided uh, we're going to call We Are Not Afraid and We Don't Care. And that's spelled C period, A period, I period, R period. It's an acronym. And so um, we'll get into that here in just a little bit. Um, I'm, I'm really happy to have uh, my guest on today. I've, I stayed up uh, a good bit last night, just uh, kind of like it was Christmas. Uh, this is something that is uh, important to me. It's something that I, I really have sort of lost focus um, on and uh, lost focus on uh, bringing light to. So I'm kind of glad that uh, this is this has come together today. Um, my guest is uh, Paul Dave Gobbitz. He is uh, founder, author, and uh, uh, counterterrorism, counterintelligence uh, authority extraordinaire. Um, he is uh, the premier authority on the Muslim Brotherhood. His book, Muslim Mafia, Inside the Secret Underworld That's Conspiring to Islamize America, is unsurpassed in the world of counterterror. His uh, investigative team exposed the largest Muslim conspiracy in U.S. history, uncovering over 12,000 documents and 300 hours of audio-video materials relating to criminal terrorist activity. And that's against America. So, uh, you know, he's uh, best known to the public for his work, but he's also known as the terrorist hunter. And um, aside from co-authoring the Magna Carta of books on the Muslim underworld, Dave Gobbitz is a U.S. State Department trained Arabic linguist and retired federal agent with the U.S. Air Force Office of Special Investigations. And among his many achievements, he has investigated felony crimes against the U.S. Air Force and uh, you know the government and was the very first special civilian agent deployed 
to Nasiriyah, Iraq in 2003 for Operation Iraqi Freedom. He's received extensive training and experience in Islamic ideology and tactics, um, and that's including from former members of Islamic terror groups um, as well as uh, from Muslim military and law enforcement who served under the uh, late former Iraqi President Saddam Hussein. So, with over three decades of combined experience in this arena, uh, Dave held top-secret SCI clearance on counterintelligence and counterterrorism matters for over 15 years, and he's received the highest levels of intelligence, including uh, for weapons of mass destructions. Uh, I'm sorry, for weapons of mass destruction and espionage. He's also uh, been briefed into many black project programs for U.S. national security purposes, and has been assigned to numerous counterintelligence and counterterrorism operations. Um, I could go on and on and on, but uh, the, uh, the point of it is that uh, this gentleman brings quite a bit of gravitas to uh, the, uh, the conversation we're going to have tonight. So, uh, Dave, welcome to aboard the uh, Powder Monkey podcast. I'm, I'm really excited that you're here. Well, thank you so much, Sean. It's an honor to be, to be on your show. Um. You know, I, I guess I want to start with, uh, you had me at Terrorist Hunter, and so um, I, I kind of maybe want to start there when I contacted you. I told you that, uh, you know, I, I think that uh, maybe you um, would have a little bit of expertise, um, whether, you know, uh, abroad or domestic, um, you know, what a terrorist is. I think you would have a little bit of uh, gravitas to your uh, to your um, uh, testimony here tonight. Would would that be true? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm not good in a lot of things, but understanding Islam and the terrorist threat coming from Islam is something I studied for over three decades. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, with um, w- with it, let's start with this. Um, the word terrorist, um, you know, uh, there have been, you know, I, I, in the, I guess the initial correspondence that I sent to you, um, I included a quote by CIA, former CIA director John Brennan, and uh, this was in reference to the Biden intel community. He said um, that they're now moving in laser-like fashion to try to uncover as much as they can about what looks very similar to insurgency movements that we've seen overseas where they uh, germinate in different parts of the country, they gain strength, and it brings together an unholy alliance, frequently, of religious extremists, authoritarians, fascists, bigots, racists, nativists, even libertarians. And so, um, you know, I, I could kind of see the, um, after, you know, everything was settled and, you know, what happened in D.C. and, and you know, all that mess, then the word domestic terrorism began to, uh, to un, you know, uh, furl there and, and in the news cycles and whatnot. And some of the people that I've, I've had on my show um, are being used and, and pointed out and, um, you know, and, and labeled as terrorists. So, you know, I, I, I just maybe want to, to know, I mean, what are the hallmarks of a terrorist? Whether uh, do they have similarities, whether it's abroad or, I guess, here in you know in in the homeland? Well, you know, the definition essentially of terrorism is to incite fear in order to uh, achieve whatever objective it may be. Now, a 
terrorist is the person who actually goes out and does the inciting and does the terrorist acts. As far as we go in America, a terrorist is defined as someone who is attempting to incite fear inside America, in, inside Americans, and for a, an, an objective in this regard related to the advancement of Islam, and, um, and they do that uh, through very violent acts. So when you talk about domestic terrorists here in America, like uh, many of the communist liberals are doing today, they're talking about American citizens who are trying to protect this country, not to destroy the country, but to protect the country, which our leaders currently are not doing. And uh, so that's that's the big difference. Uh, with Islamic-based terrorism, they, they are their own words are to destroy America and to destroy Israel. Domestic terrorists, the so-called label that has been given, are people who are doing their very best to make sure that children in America do not suffer and that we have the America that we were meant to have. And I guess that's that's one thing, um, you know, I've also I've always equated I guess our our social contract with with buying a car. Um, if I were to try to sell somebody a car and then change the rules of the contract or redefine what the contract is, or you know redefine the terms in the contract, I would be you know prosecuted sued <laughs> I mean yeah but but you know that kind of is happening to to what you know uh, what we have here in America and even you know West Virginia is sort of a you know it's always sort of been a blue democrat state but when I talk to a lot of people, um, you know, just both in, in passing and, you know, maybe knocking doors, you know, or, or whatever, a lot of the people said, you know, that's not my party. My party left me. And um, yeah. and I, I guess maybe that's that's sort of where we, you know, I, I guess I'm, I'm misunderstanding, you know, are, is the old lady holding the flag, you know, in the rotunda of the Capitol? Um is she is she a terrorist? I mean, is that really what we what we are scared of? I mean, you know, with with the Fort Hood shooting, they were so reluctant to even call that terrorism. Exactly. The the difference is the the lady holding the flag in D.C. or in West Virginia or in California holding the American flag is considered a domestic terrorist by terrorists themselves who are the communist liberal leaders currently in America. So, of course, anyone who goes against communism, liberalism, socialism is is a threat and they are considered a terrorist. The uh, Actually, our contract in America, we talk, you talked about the, the car contract. Our contract is the U.S. Constitution. Mm -hmm. And we were given the U.S. Constitution by very intelligent people over 200 years ago. And we, as Americans, are uh, expect to live our lives through the U.S. Constitution and under God. And that is what communism 
the, the socialist liberals like Biden and, and his whole crew are trying to take away from Americans. They're trying to rip up the contract that we signed on to over 200 years ago. Americans do not want to lose our contract, which is the U.S. Constitution, and they won't allow it to be lost. And our forefathers put that into the Constitution that there are going to be enemies from outside the U.S. and from within the U.S. that Americans at some point are going to have to stand up and defend against because they are going to try to rip that contract up and true, pure Americans are just not going to allow it. Right, right. And that's, I mean, I guess, you know, you you have an extensive um, you know, background in terrorism. And so when I say the date, April 19th, that means something to you. And, well, um, I mean, you know, the, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. What I was going to say, there, there are so many dates throughout history that, that people have the point of terrorist events and, and when we defend against terrorism, but basically, the one that stands out to me, as well as millions of other people, is September 11th. Yes. That was when, at one point in the last 50 years, that Americans have united, but almost immediately you had the communists come in and who were trying to uh, separate, cause disunity uh, among Americans, and it didn't take long before that to happen. Right. Well, with with April nineteenth, the reason I said that 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 also is my birthday, so oh. I have experienced you know twice, <laughs> you know in in my life, you know just the the and and to see that those things happen, and the gradual over the decades that you know the the demonization of the the the, the returning military veterans and how now those people who who wrote a blank check and put everything on the line now they're public enemy number one once they return, but their their ideology isn't you know to destroy America, you know they 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 wrote the ultimate check, you know, and and I don't understand that. And and you had mentioned documents and, and training and things like that, and I just, mm-hmm. it, I don't understand how, well, I guess first of all, how so many people would allow that type of rhetoric to to filter into. I mean, how, how does that, I mean, do you have any, any can, can you speculate on that or can you, can you speak to that? Well, Sean, I think that's a a very good question. Now, as far as when we talk about the U.S. Constitution, there have been people for decades, specifically in the 40s and 50s, communists, who were trying to uh, overthrow America over a time period. But now it's come to the head were in the 50s, you dare not say that you were a communist, you hated America, especially as a politician, Uh, but now, and in Hollywood, but now today, it's almost an honor for these people to step forward and say, I am a communist or a socialist, I do not like America, I hate America, I do not like the flag. Uh, You know, when you say April 19th, are you referring specifically to Oklahoma City? 
Well, the the you know, the the Oklahoma City bombing and just well, right. just all the tragedy, you know, and and on on all the you know on every aspect of that, yeah, it exactly it, it just is, uh, you know, that that uh, you, you kind of it's one of those dates where you don't forget where you were. And especially if it's your birthday, <laughs> you know, it just, it makes an impact, um, on you. So, um, you know, uh, I guess with that though, how does one legally, lawfully, you know, I, I know that being vocal, but, but when you have a former CIA director coming on talking about how, you know, they're moving in laser-like fashion and, and you know, the, the amount of technology that that is, you know, available to just... I, I have so many friends that won't talk or comment, or, you know, now it's just the they have been essentially chilled or silenced. And and that's a bad that's a bad precedent, I think. Well, that's a, it's also a form of terrorism to silence people, to make them so fearful, and in this case, fearful of their own government to do what's something under the U.S. Constitution is, is free speech. Uh, when there comes a time, Sean, in America where I'm afraid to say something about my own government, if I think that something's being done wrong... Mm-hmm. Or to talk about Islamic-based terrorism, who are trying people who are trying to harm this country, then that would be the day that I raise the white flag of surrender. And I really don't see a day coming like that because once you do that, once you raise the white flag, then you have really essentially just uh, indentured yourself to the government. You've indentured yourself to the enemies who are trying to overthrow this country. And there are many patriots out there who will never do that. Now, I don't advocate a war or violence. I've seen enough of it uh, when I was in Iraq and and other conflicts. I don't advocate that. But I, I can say that American patriots are not going to allow this country to be taken away from our children. They're not going to be allowed the flag and the Constitution and the hundreds of thousands of Americans who have died throughout the centuries to protect this country. They're not going to let it just go away. No one wants war. No one wants conflict. But in the end... If you get pushed enough by terrorists, which in this case I'm talking about communist terrorists and I'm talking about Islamic terrorists, people are going to fight back. There comes a point where a cardboard poster protesting downtown peacefully does not do the job. There has never been a war won with a cardboard poster. We would have never won in Germany or against Japan or uh, in Iraq or Afghanistan or wherever, we would never have won the war with just a cardboard poster. You don't want war, but Americans, one thing pure, true Americans don't do is they don't run. The 4,000 plus that have died in Iraq and Afghanistan over the last couple decades, they did not run. They did not wave the white flag of surrender. And American patriots here in this country are not going to run either. The people who are silenced right now, who are afraid to talk, probably shouldn't have been talking 
five and ten and fifteen years ago. If you're not going to uh, talk when it's needed, then you surely shouldn't be talking when it's not needed. You've got to speak up for your country, especially when your country's been attacked. Right. So, I think we've covered that. I, I guess, and it's safe to say, as as somebody who who has some background and authority, that uh, I can sleep at night knowing that I am not uh, uh, out radicalizing children to the right. American ideal. <laughs> so, okay, good deal. Um, you know, so let's let's move on and let's let's uh, peel this onion back because there's I I'm, I I see it in my mind as as an onion here and um, I'm holding in my hand um, a sworn affidavit that you put together and that you will freely you know send to anybody who who is interested and um, I'm just going to read a note um, that you put in here and uh, just to kind of set the precedent and then uh, we'll talk about you know Islam I'm, I'm going to let you kind of you know, you put this together, so I'm going to kind of let you, you know, discuss it in the in the manner and fashion that you have. If I have a question, I'm going to, uh, you know, uh, you know, speak up. But I, I, I kind of want you to, you know, to have the uh, ability to have more than just a, a few minute segments or clips somewhere to to try to shoehorn, you know, decades worth of experience and work into, uh, you know, into one segment. But on that. Um, on this note, you said, when I conduct counterterrorism research in America, it is my objective to expose Islam when Islam requires exposing, which is 24-7. Anything I do or any materials I uncover for, uh, are for public release. It is my policy to provide the, to the public uh, my raw intelligence first before providing to all others. Only the, Amer- the American public can protect America. It is the responsibility of the public to demand politicians and our senior law enforcement to do the job which they have sworn an oath to do, which is protect America and most importantly protect our children. The public must also demand our media report the news based on facts and evidence and not their personal political agendas as it is now the case by far in America. Um, with that being said, would you agree with the term mockingbird media? Do you do you think that that exists in in that form? Maybe not the actual project mockingbird, but the, just the the spirit of it at the well, very I would, least. I would ask that you define uh, what you're, you're saying about mockingbird. What is your definition of mockingbird? Then I can tell you if I agree or disagree. Well, um, with and I and I'm by no means a, a scholar on it, but what I mean by mockingbird is just the 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 spirit of the a narrative that is inorganic. It is uh, maybe constructed and, and put into media in a manner to um, coerce or, um, well, for all intents and purposes, possibly program. Um, mm-hmm. Would you agree with that? Would you say that... Okay, I, I do agree that our media is is more along now the lines of a state-run type media mm-hmm. where they have been given marching orders, political, and I'm talking about not just the uh, CNN, MSNBC, but to a 
large extent, Evan Fox was a conservative. Mm-hmm. They've been given their marching orders on what to say, what not to say, and it is to inf- influence the people. The media is not what it used to be 50 years ago where they provided fact-based, they truly went out and investigated something. Now the majority of times our media already has the, the full story. Shortly after any incident even happens, they already know who to blame, who's, who's responsible for it, yet it, it takes years to get an investigation through Congress of any type. We've tried to get investigations against uh, Hillary Clinton for her criminal activities and against James Comey, the former FBI director who committed very blatant uh, criminal acts against against America. Yet the media, it, it takes two mm. minutes before them now to decide that all of a sudden that on 6th January, 2021 that our president, one of the best presidents we've ever had, President Trump, was instigating violence and riots with all the stuff that has happened with Antifa and Black Lives Matter, which is nothing more than a Marxist organization. You never hear CNN talk of downplaying uh, uh, Antifa or BLM, but all of a sudden you get American patriots who go to Washington, D.C., and only a few, a handful, actually went into the Capitol. The majority were very peaceful, doing uh, nothing but protesting, peaceful, true peaceful protesting, and all of a sudden, everyone now who is a conservative is a domestic terrorist. Now, CNN, MSNBC, and one of their leaders, Al Sharpton, who I, I, I say is equivalent to uh, a journalist with a third grade education, are now calling American patriots domestic terrorists. It's sad. They've got their agenda. They already know when a story uh, pops up how they're going to go after it. They've already got the conclusion before they have the basic initial facts. And being a former federal agent, I base everything that I do, all the investigations and that affidavit that you were reading a part of, Yes, sir. I base it only on first-hand evidence. If I don't have first-hand evidence, I don't discuss it. If I put something in an affidavit, it is because I would go before any court in the U.S. and I would swear to it under oath about what I found out. I think the one you're referencing is probably the one I went to in South Charleston when I went to a mosque in South Charleston yes. within the last year. Is, is that the one you're referencing? Yes, sir. It is. Okay. And so yeah. the... Um, I guess, I guess, and as I understand it, I think traditionally you start with, um, you know, what is a Muslim, and um, the the I guess for people who don't know, I know that you know there have been instances where that's uh, you know they they radicals have gone in and stabbed people, and the test they used was asking people what are the pillars of islam and uh, right. so i I guess you know maybe let's start there if you want to or or you start where you want to, but um I guess maybe with that um you know I'm looking at it here you 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 know 
and you have a full well, you know uh, alphabet basically a, a full set of of uh, criteria that you right. know and, and we'll get into that as well but um, you know you said um, when I give presentations I'm often asked if I feel all Muslims are bad or evil people and to answer this it is vitally important to define who a Muslim is that, that's so important because when you, you first talked about you said rad- a radical Muslim going in somewhere and stabbing people well the first thing that I try to uh, educate people on, and I've trained over 10,000 law enforcement uh, throughout America, the first thing I try to teach people about Islam specifically is that there is no such thing as a moderate Muslim, a radical Muslim, a um, uh, any other type Muslim. There is only a pure Muslim. And that's not according to Dave Govitz, me. I've been in the over 400 mosques in the, in the United States alone where I've conducted research anywhere from one day up to six months in a particular mosque. And when I go into mosques, one of the things, one of the criteria I look at, I talk with the Islamic leaders and I ask them a lot of these questions. What is a Muslim? Is there a radical Muslim? Is there, are there moderate Muslims? Because, we, Sean, we always hear from people who say, well, I know lots of good Muslims, that my neighbor is a good Muslim, he would help me and my family out, or she would, or my doctor is a Muslim, they're the best people I know. And my answer to that is, if indeed they are very, very good people, honest people, then they are not Muslim, they are apostates of Islam, because Islam does not allow for a person to be good. If you've got a neighbor and say that neighbor is actually a pure Muslim, as defined by Islamic 100% Sharia compliant, they believe in everything Prophet Muhammad did as a good character and as an example for people to follow, then that person cannot be good because under Sharia law, there are many peaceful aspects of it, like the how to eat, how to drink, how to sleep, marriage, divorce. But then there are so many violent aspects about physical jihad, jihad qatar, and about child marriages and concerning slavery. There are so many, and killing innocent uh, non-Muslims throughout the world. That is all a part of Sharia. In order to be a pure Muslim, a Muslim, you have to adhere to Sharia law 100%, not 95%, not 98%. I use an analogy with the uh, Ten Commandments. It's like with a Christian. You got the Ten Commandments. It would, are you truly a Christian, and I'm not one to judge if you are or not, if you say, well, I like uh, commandment 1, 6, and 8, but I am not going to follow 2, 3, and 7. I'm just not going to follow those. Then are you truly a Christian? Well, that is not for me to judge, but I can say within Islam, they do judge. If you pick apart Sharia law, 
and say, well, I know I do not accept child marriages, and I think that what Prophet Muhammad did when he raped Aisha when she was six years old is a pure example of what Muslims should do, then can you be a good person if that's what you believe? If you believe that a six-year-old child down the street can be married to a 50-year-old man and it's justified and you advocate that type behavior to essentially rape young children, whether you help your neighbor shovel their snow or you're a good doctor who is compassionate to your patient, if you have that in your heart that you desire and advocate the rape of young children, are you a good person? So Can you be a good person? Let me ask you this. The term Muslim American, then, it's an oxymoron. It, it can't exist, basically. Right. I, I, and, and, and I say the same thing with African-American, and I don't mean any disrespect in that. Mm-hmm. But we, we don't have... When I'm, I'm, my family was in German. I don't call myself a German-American right. or a French-American. No more. Either you're an American or you're not an American. Well, if, and either you're a Muslim or you're not a Muslim. Well, and the, and the thing that gets me, though, is when they use that term, it's used and, and thought of. But it's, it's, it, Muslim is not a race. It is an ideology. Right. So, you know, I, it... it it cannot, I guess it's one of those sort of laws of physics things. It can't exist, you know, two things can't exist in one place. <laughs> and uh, right. that's what it sounds like to me if, you know, as, as you're putting it out, you know, it's, it's either hot or cold. You, you either are or you're an apostate. And if you're an apostate, you're no better than, you know, than the... An infidel. Yeah. Yeah, you're no better than a non-Muslim. And again, this is according to Islam, and this is according to what are currently in the 3,500-plus mosque in America, the material that's in there. They never talk about moderate Muslims or radicals or extremists. They don't use those terms. They say you're either pure Muslim or you're an apostate of Islam. If you're an apostate of Islam, then you're subject to, to being killed anywhere, any place, Chicago, West Virginia, Africa, Saudi Arabia, wherever it may be. You're either Muslim and you advocate Sharia 100% and or you're an apostate, an enemy of Islam. And fortunately, Sean, when I say, uh, are there good Muslims? Well, again, Islam does not allow for a person to be good. If you believe in throwing homosexuals off of buildings and killing them because they're simply because they're homosexual, you cannot be a good person. I'm sorry. I, again, I don't care if you shovel the snow of your neighbor. If you believe in throwing a homosexual off a building and killing them, you are not a good person and you cannot be considered a good person. What did Jesus say? Even a little leaven leaveneth? So, you know, it's that, you know, that it is. You're, you're absolutely right. And, uh, you know, again, I, I guess it it has that hallmark, whether it's, you know, I guess Islam or whether it's it's what you see with Epstein and, and everything that's going on there. It always goes back to the children. It always goes back to people who, who you know, I guess at least on the surface have that appearance of you know forthrightness and and you know they're admired and you know 
and you know i i guess again like i said it's it's an onion um and if they are i guess let's talk about uh and i'm probably going to butcher this but uh uh takia if mm-hmm. if I'm right. if I'm pronouncing yeah. that correctly, right? Takia deception. Okay, so how I mean, you know, if if you have somebody with that mindset, and I, I guess maybe that's something else I'd like to know is is when when this is occurring, when when they're going out and they're actually acting upon, you know, they're they're having, I guess, what would be called the courage of their convictions at that point. And they're out, you know, stabbing people and, and or, or, you know, mass, you know, becoming a mass shooter. Um, what what goes on in the mind of that person? Um, I'm sure they feel, you know, you know, justified and vindicated. And um, even if they've, you know, like, uh, I guess. Well, I, I think I know where you're going Mm-hmm. Sean and and I'm on the same track with you. Now I coming from a military background. Before I was an agent, uh, a civilian federal agent, I served 20 years in the Air Force, and I use the the same analogy with that. When we went to war, it was it was hard in Iraq when we were calling in the coordinates for a house, and you knew possibly that families may be in the house, uh, innocent people may may die but we felt that you know being trained military that it was a part of war that it had to be done and within islam when you're talking about takia deception it's a part that they have been raised from birth to believe anything that would advance islam toward their ultimate goal the ultimate goal of Islam is to form an Islamic caliphate, ummah, nation, worldwide and under Sharia law. So anything that advances that objective, whether it's lying straight to the face of from a, uh, a Muslim leader to a non-Muslim leader, lying right to the face, which they do each and every day, Saudi Arabia does it each and every day, Iran does it each and every day, then it's justified and they they don't even blink an eye when they're doing it because it advances Islam. Anything that advances Islam is within the character of their prophet Muhammad and anything he did is very admirable and should be copied uh, each and every day. Do you have any, I know that you mentioned first-hand accounts and I guess in I guess try, when you're when you're trying to, especially when you're over there and you're trying to determine who is and who isn't, and um, you know the you, you mentioned uh, on your blog about um, you know some of the people that have found Jesus. Do you have any um, any stories? About I mean, Muslims who have found Jesus. Yes. Yes. Okay. okay. Uh, yeah. Um, and so. I mean, do you have any first-hand accounts of that? And and how? I mean, even at that, and and I guess it's the same with anybody. But I mean, it, you know, I guess you're known by your fruits. But I guess how is somebody over there working in that? Do you do you know? I mean, is is it a gut thing? Are you? I mean, are there? 
are there signs? I mean, what, what do you, what did you go by, and what what would one go by when they're when they're looking for these things? And and well, I have saw that uh, firsthand where Muslims have converted uh, to Christianity or even Judaism. I have seen it firsthand. Now, one thing that I didn't talk about when I was talking about are there good Muslims? Well, if you follow Islam, again, you cannot be a good Muslim. But fortunately, you cannot be a good person, I say. Uh, But fortunately, there are millions of people, good people, who uh, are affiliated and associated with Islam. In their hearts, they believe that they're Muslims. But also in their hearts, they do not believe in killing innocent people. They do not believe in child marriages or slavery or killing homosexuals. Fortunately for the world, there are millions of people who identify as Muslims who are actually very, very good people who do not believe in those aspects of Sharia. But again, they're very good people, but they're not Muslims in accordance with the definition of what a Muslim is by Islamic leaders. Very good people, but they are apostates. Gotcha. Um, I guess here in West Virginia, um, you know, I, I, I'm really glad that, that the people who invited you here did so. Um, I, I'm glad that you had an opportunity to look, um, you know, in this area and, and see. And I, I want to get into that. Um, you know, I, I guess just uh, with that, there were, I, I sort of did, was doing some deep diving on the internet yesterday, and really I probably should have started with the sworn affidavit and worked backwards, but uh, that's not how I do things. So um, I, I found, though, that you and I um, actually. Um, you and I have run across a, a few different things, um, or a, a similar things. Um, you know, a couple terminologies that you've actually used, and it's it's one of your, um, you know, it's it's one of your um, uh, precedents for you know whether this is an Islamic activity or not. But the the interfaith ministries, right? And that's that's actually you know you know closer to the z side of the alphabet if i remember correctly but um you know the um with it i i actually have had some run-ins just you know just uh, through you know just life um with west virginia interfaith you know ministries members of that um people who it's all really when, when we talk about care you know that's it's an acronym, and it. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but as I understand it, it's the uh, Center for American Islamic Relations. Or the council. Or I'm I'm sorry, yeah, council, council. Right. Yeah, that's what it is. And so, but but as an acronym, I mean that's just that's just one. You know, uh, I guess appearance. You can call it a different name, and I guess for the same thing, it could be, you know, uh, several different, you know, several different things. It could be, um, you know, uh, some type of some. Uh, it can appear, I guess, what I'm saying is some type of uh, SPLC or NAACP. Um, you know, I've, I ran into a lady who was spearheading this 
this um, protest in the in my neighborhood, and she her name was uh, Alexandra Gallo, um, and uh, so she you know was uh, associated with the West Virginia Interfaith Refugee Ministry, um, Clean Water Action. If you know much about them. Uh, uh, you know, NAACP, uh, Tuesday Morning Group, uh, you know, s- several different things. But I have her on film saying, you know, none of us are paid. She's a, you know, she's a uh, wearing a shirt that, that in, is endorsing Planned Parenthood, which, you know, works against the American birth rate, which helps mm-hmm. yeah, I mean like I said it's an, it's an onion but um, and I'm, I'm digressing but um, you know it, it's just strange because that that group has always sort of stuck out to me like a sore thumb and the things that they do I don't again I don't understand whether you're a Christian or you know I know that they're all Abrahamic but there's very very vast differences uh, with the understanding of who Jesus was um, who God was I mean you know the you know Allah um, and and the God of the New Testament and you know who Jesus was the son of, of God and in the Christian theology it's you know that that's a huge gulf that you can't overcome so when they talk about things like Chrislam, and I mean, is that basically all just lip service on the on the Muslim side for you know for the Catholic faith and and the Vatican and everything? I mean, is that that can exist as I understand it? I mean, am I am I correct in that? Right. I'll, I'll give you from what I've found out about interfaith, and again, this is all based on firsthand mm-hmm. and from my talking with imams at mosque who are very much. Uh, involved in, in getting interfaith programs started in their communities. Now, coming from a law enforcement background, and uh, most people are familiar in America with confidential informant sources. Some people say snitches, which is derogatory because there are good people who try to help sure. with information, and that's not really a good term to use. But within the Muslim community, the Islamic leadership, they have a better source network than even the FBI has. And I don't think the FBI is a prime example of, of a great uh, law enforcement agency in America, especially over the last couple of decades. But nevertheless, the Islamic leaders have been given their marching orders, Sunni from Saudi Arabia, Shiite from Iran in the communities in America to start these interfaith programs, which is nothing more than developing sources so that, again, for the advancement of Islam. And this is what one imam told me about the interfaith programs. He said, if I can go to a Baptist church down the street that maybe has 1,000 members in it, if I can get that pastor, preacher, minister on my side, convince them that Islam is peaceful, loving, caring, then it doesn't matter what the 1,000 uh, Christian worshipers that church 
think, believe, or do, because once they have that pastor under their control, then if one of those Christians do get out of hand and start bashing Islam or going against Islam, then they know that they can go through that pastor and get that person back in line. So they use these ministers and pastors and Christians and Jewish leaders to advance Islam so that they, if they have a, either a 50 or 5,000 members, that that pastor will keep their people under control. And so it's nothing more. I, I can only relate the interfaith program as a one of the greatest American hoaxes ever put on the American people, almost similar to the COVID. That's the only way I can use an analogy, is that it is nothing but tequila, pure tequila deception. It is not meant to unite or or to get along with a fellow neighbor, neighbors. It is used as a confidential source program so that they can get, they use it also, aside from interfaith, the Muslim leaders also get involved with local law enforcement because, again, if they can get that sheriff or police chief or FBI special agent in charge on their side, then they know that if, if the sheriff has 500 officers, deputies, that if one of those deputies starts getting out of line, going against something um, Islamic, maybe trying to start an investigation in a mosque, all that imam has to do is call his friend, who is nothing more than a source, a confidential informant is the way they believe, they call their friend the sheriff to get that deputy back in line. They do this in, in our government, they do this in Hollywood, our banking systems, our school systems, from elementary all the way to university, and with the interfaith, they do it in our religious communities. I think, Sean, it's important that you have interfaith, if you're talking about interfaith between Baptists, Lutherans, Mormons, Catholics, Jews, but when you start talking about having interfaith with maybe uh, a satanic type organization or an organization Islam whose straight out goal is to destroy America and Israel then you plan on very dangerous grounds interfaith between different uh, denominations Baptist, Lutheran, whatever it may be is you still have the love of this country the love of Israel the love of innocent people Islam is just totally 180 degrees opposite that they have the hate of this country they have the hate of non-Muslims and they even have the hate of people who call themselves Muslims who but do not uh, want to advance Islam so it's a very dangerous because Islamic leaders, most of these Islamic leaders in our communities, most of them are trained in Saudi Arabia and or Iran, if they're Shiite. Most of them are at the Ph.D. level, very, very smart people, and they know they run their mosque just like a military operation. And they are very good at it, and unfortunately, we have very innocent, very naive good-willed people in churches and in synagogues who do not know how to play at that level. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I guess with um, with that, once, I guess, once the, I, I, 
I was doing some, uh, I guess, research into, you know, what Hitler did with, you know, uh, you know, his sort of um, uh, courting of the Muslim world and, you know, how, uh, to me at least, it looks like history is sort of cyclical and, um, you know, Islam is sort of that conquering force that they use, um, you know, I, I guess they had had the common uh, enemies, um, you know, and, and so the Germans started to relax, you know, some of the, the sacrificial uh, regulations and, and everything like that, um, and he courted the Muslim world, um, sort of used them, and... I mean, we we see today, and uh, you know, people who refer to, and I'm not going to throw names out there, but they refer to, you know, what they did with, you know, Nazis, and and as a child, you know, happy making time, uh, you know, going in and sort of being that Judas goat for, um, you know, as a Jew for other Jews, and uh, you know, if if I didn't do it, somebody else would, and. And now that person seems to be tied. When I when I did a deep dive, when I ran into these people at the Bechtel Summit, it was just it was a completely staged event. And this woman, you know, who was part of the interfaith refugee ministry, um, you know, the, it just was so much stench. I could I could smell, you know, the um, the Open Society Foundation. Um, you know, and and Solinsky, I could smell it from the uh, from the car <laughs> when I got out. And I mean, I guess there's a there seems to be a common denominator with that. Um, you know, the the money to get people across the border and to the border and for the boats and you know, um, and what looks like to me, am I wrong as far as the people that are coming uh, as this? In you know, they 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 come in the name of being refugees and and you know the needy and the, the poor and uh, you know you you would think it's a good idea but you know most of them as i understand it um are middle age i mean you know not maybe not even middle aged fighting men but uh, you know fighting age men um right. they come across their you know the the previous administrations had basically sort of uh changed the definition of what a you know i guess maybe what a what a what a youth is and so i mean is that uh, i mean and nobody said a word but you know well, it's, it's, it's again it's it's very dangerous when you're bringing people in from countries that have no system actually to do any type real background checks they don't have like a social security system and i found that out in our, in iraq when we were trying to vet people to bring them to the u.s because they had tried or had actually saved American lives, and now their lives were threatened. Mm-hmm. And I'll give a good example of one of my good friends. Absolutely. He's an Iraqi police officer uh, um, in Iraq, in Nasiriyah, and his uh, brother was Muhammad Oda al-Rahif, the Iraqi lawyer who had actually started providing the intelligence to the Marines about the whereabouts of the POW Jessica Lynch, as yes. we, most of us recall in 2003, that she was captured in Nasiriyah, where this family put their lives at risk, 
in order to save Jessica Lynch and many other Americans who they actually provided information that saved American life. Now, I had the task of going in and actually rescuing the Iraqi family, who it was about nine people, who had put their life at risk to help save Jessica and other Americans. Now, and, and then they started getting threatened by Saddam Fedayeen and um, Al-Qaeda, and yes, Al-Qaeda was in Iraq in 2003. So this family was starting to get uh, threats. Their home had been uh, bombed more, on more than one occasion. And so I was trying to work with the State Department to get this family brought to the U.S. because of their heroic efforts in saving American life. Well, the State Department at that time, they're not interested now, but the State Department at that time said, well, you got to vet the people. you got to go out and do these background checks. And, 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 and we were saying, we're in the middle of a war in Iraq. Right. <laughs> there is no number we can just punch into a computer and they come back all clear like it is, you know, in the U.S. where you can essentially do that. Flash we your federal ID. Interviewing, yeah, we could go around interviewing neighbors and teachers and etc but that's the kind of work that they wanted us to do then but then all of a sudden when uh, you got uh, Democrats who come in and they just want to let any and everyone in without any type vetting you cannot vet people from the Middle East and most Islamic countries it simply can't be done so you're taking a big chance on allowing any person to come in that you cannot vet. I don't care if they happen to be from France or Germany or wherever they may be. If you cannot vet the person, you're taking a big chance. With the refugees coming into America, 999 out of every thousand have been vetted absolutely to zero degree. So, and and that's, you know, I guess they say if you want to know where America's headed, you know, look at Europe and... Um, you know, it's. Uh, I, I don't know if you want to speak to it, but um, you know the, uh, the 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 whole Tommy Robinson, um, right in England issue, and um, you know how, you know we we see that there are no go zones, and you know believe it or not, in 2014 I was censored and wiped off a message board because I had the gall to say that there are no-go zones in Europe. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, I mean, I was literally censored, and I have the screenshots, and I may do a whole, you know, episode on that one day. But, you know, the... Um, it, it doesn't take a stretch of the imagination or a, you know, a, a political scholar or some, you know, to, to look and see where we're headed if, you know... And Tommy Robinson, as I understand it, you know, he just got into the fray because he had had enough of seeing, um, you know, out his out his shop window, you know, sex trafficking, um, and right, and you know, all the things that's happened to him. You know, I, I just well, I think Sean that uh, you hit on something that was very important when you talk about no go zones and Islamic. Uh, communities, whether they be in Europe or wherever they happen to be, France, Germany, England, wherever. But people, a lot of people don't realize, because remember, I've been all across the United States investigating mosques. I can tell you from firsthand experience, 
for every one legitimate, like, nonprofit organization mosque that you may see, this nice, pretty building in a particular whatever city it may be, for every one that you can document, there's probably two to three others in that same town that you cannot find because what they do, and this is according to imams I've talked to, is they said most mosques in America, there's about 3,500 uh, known mosques in America. So there's probably uh, closer to nine to 10,000 mosques in actuality. And what they do with the majority of mosques in America, they're nothing more than, uh, you know, some old house in a drug gang-infested neighborhood so that they can keep the police, law enforcement, and everyday citizens away, and they do not get nonprofit licenses, they don't have websites, but the majority of mosques are set up like that, and I've been throughout Brooklyn and many other areas in Atlanta and places that if you're not Muslim and you go into these areas at 2 o'clock in the morning, you are going to have serious problems. I don't know how much time you've ever spent in Brooklyn, but when I first went to Brooklyn, there's a mosque uh, uh, at Takwa. It's a, a mosque by Imam Siraj Wahaj. He used to be a uh, Christian minister and then um, went uh, to, into Islam, and now he's probably the most powerful Muslim in America. Nothing happens on the Sunni side of a uh, within Islam without Imam Siraj Wahaj knowing about it and approving it. And he's out of Brooklyn. He's got a family, a wife in Brooklyn. He's also got a family and wife and other wives in Atlanta. But when I first went to Brooklyn uh, a little over 10, 12 years ago to study some of the mosque and his mosque, I thought I was back in Saudi Arabia. Mm. It was uh, that different. You felt every shop around certain area streets in Brooklyn were uh, Muslim. Mm -hmm. You had the uh, the call to prayers on the speakers, and you have patrols, Sharia patrols that look like police cars that are actually patrolling the neighborhoods. And only because they thought that I was actually Muslim did I not have any problems in that area. But I was with, uh, again, one of my researchers I was with was the uh, the Muslim captain, a former Iraqi police officer captain who was on my team when I went around to a lot of these mosques. And it was only because people thought that where they thought he was Muslim and they thought I was Muslim that we didn't have any problems. Otherwise, 2 o'clock in the morning in those areas, they are no-go zones for non-Muslims. There are many places throughout America that are no-go zones uh, if you're not Muslim. Let me ask you a question. In all your experience, have you ever heard an imam express concern over losing their 501c3? No, because they don't depend on that. Right. They don't depend on they. They don't actually don't depend on it. Uh, it's a formality form. It helps them legally. But like I said, the majority of mosques in America are not 501 uh, nonprofit organizations. They have a bigger. They get their money from Saudi Arabia, and they get the Shiite get their money from Iran. Mm -hmm. That's a much more financial advantage than anything the U.S. government's IRS system can give them. 
right. and they don't have the uh, the legalities to deal with if you're 501. The things you can can do and can't do in a mosque and sure. So they don't rely on our nonprofit IRS system. I, I think that that has hobbled, and I, I ask that because you know there there are again that chilling effect that I mentioned. Um, you know there are you know it, it just. The, the whole 501c3 issue and, and the chilling effect of and we've seen how it was weaponized during the uh, Obama regime um, you know so again um, there's a lot in, and I, I really you know I, I wanted to, to kind of lay the groundwork I, what you did with CARE is, is extremely important I, I want to give a lot of time to that um, you know I, I want to give I want to dig into that uh, a couple other things before we do. Um, just I want to pick your brain on a couple things I had a question about, but uh, you know, a couple questions about. But um, the, you know, I, you had mentioned the Sunni and the Shiite, and you know, the the. I guess the Sunni is the majority. Um, you know, as I understand it, uh-huh. they. I guess I'm looking for that divide and conquer thing, or the 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 fracture, or the you know the I I know that there's maybe some disagreement over you know that uh, some type of satanic verses that that Muhammad was tricked by and things like that. I mean, is there is there enough infighting that that they I mean may I mean, is is that a weakness with them? I guess is the first thing um, with it. Yeah. Well, I, I I tell you, from my let's put it in a military type um, aspect. Mm-hmm. Uh, is it a, a disadvantage to them? It it is in certain ways because the Sunnis do not believe they believe all Shi'i are apostates of Islam. All Shi'i believe that Sunnis are all apostates of Islam. So they, they've got that aspect about them where they both believe that uh, the other is not really pure Muslim. So when you, uh, that is a conquer and divide kind of a thing. But people need to understand that the, first of all, there's probably, uh, Prophet Muhammad had said that there's going to be about 72 different denominations within Islam, not just the Sunni and the Shi'i, and there are many, many more that people have never even heard of. That, uh, But what they all have in common is that one common denominator is their objective in Islamic Ummah, under Sharia, and to destroy America and to destroy Israel. So they all have that common goal is to destroy this country and to destroy Israel, the hatred for the Jewish people and all non-Muslims. So they all have that as a common denominator. Mm -hmm. And they do work together to achieve that common goal. Just look at different motorcycle clubs, the Hells Angels and some of the the others. I can't even name some of them. But uh, you got motorcycle clubs. They're all considered one percenters. They mm-hmm. really fight and they kill each other, but they have that one common goal is they hate law and order. They hate uh, our law enforcement system and anyone who's not a one percenter. So it is a disadvantage to them to a certain extent, but they still have that goal 
is they care more about each other than they do about any true non-Muslim. Sure. One last thing, and then we'll we'll shift gears here. Um, the the Mecca, the cube, the the as I understand it, and this may be a, a little off, you know, kilter here with you know with where we're going, but the the cube and the the aspects of that um you know and as i understand it there's there's aspects of of saturn worship and and all of that how what i guess can you can you clarify the the whole point behind that ritual and and the you know the its significance to you know the, is it more significant to some sects than others or how exactly you know, no, it's actually as uh, just important to uh, Sunni, Shi'i, or uh, whatever they may be, whatever sect they may be, uh, Mecca is because of, you know, Prophet Muhammad. <laughs> but it does, when you watch, uh, you know, the activities that go on in Mecca, you would think you would, as they go around and around in circles, you know, a hundred thousands of people, it does look like a planetary type system when you mention Saturn, but uh, no, it's it's just as important to the Sunni as as the Shiite. Hmm. So um, let's let's talk about you know I, I, I'm going to borrow a phrase, but homeland security begins with hometown security, and right. you were in my backyard, um, but before you were there. You obtained, what, 12,000 documents, hundreds of hours of video, and uh, you talk, talk, I guess, about that project, you know, and uh, then let's, let's talk about, I guess, how, you know, what we have going on here in West Virginia, but the that you know i just I, I i really admire you for what you do i think the citizen journalist is um and the info war itself to to use that phrase uh-huh. is one of america's I, I think it's america's white blood cell yeah and so you know i, I really admire uh, you've done a lot of high speed things but i you i, I admire you uh, for that as much as you know all the other things that you've done because it's it's so important but but talk about um, maybe why you did it and um, you know what you recovered and uh, we'll go from there well I, I think that's an important project that was actually a two parts it's called the care project and then the mapping Sharia project and I'm, I'll go into both of those but that started in 2007 but it's important for people to understand that I retired from the government after coming back late uh, 2003 I retired uh, from the government because of one primary reason what well, two primary reasons I had a little girl five years old at the time when, and I was uh, coming back to Dallas she met me at the airport with her mom and she looked up at me and said dad don't ever leave me again mm-hmm. I had uh, been gone for a year of Arabic class uh, over six months in Saudi and Iraq and, and I was had another tour 
within two or three weeks I was going to go to Oman and be the commander there for over a year and then into Israel for five years and and so it was enough was enough but it was it was based on her plus another thing I started to see the more years I was putting into the government service is that we collected especially as federal agents working intelligence and counterintelligence is that we were collecting tons of information and it would come into our offices and we would immediately stamp it either confidential secret or top secret or sometimes even above top secret they were getting labeled and 99 times out of 100 the information should have been going out to the public to inform the public not being hid from them and put in safes that would be there for 50 or 100 years before they got declassified the majority of classified information is nothing more than simply to keep it out of the hands of the american public because government officials feel the american public can't handle it and or it's used to cover up mistakes made by government officials in the in the field and they stamp it classified and it never gets into the hands of the public hmm. so i was tired of information that could help our country that could get that citizens needed to know about that was being thrown in the safe so I left government service in late 2003, mm-hmm. and I was I obtained a position in, in Dallas as a chief investigator with the Dallas County Medical Examiner, investigating all suspicious deaths in Dallas County. Now, that was my primary job, but it gave me the opportunity for once to work an eight, nine-hour day, and the rest of the time was kind of on my own. I could do things that I... Uh, really wanted to do and so that's when in 2000 late 2003 is when I started putting together more research about Islam because the first time I went to the Middle East was in Saudi Arabia in the late 70s and I'd been going to the Middle East from the 70s to 2003 and things just weren't adding up within Islam the things that I'd been studying the things that I'd seen throughout the Middle East And so what I said is I want to go out in America, get a good picture of what is happening uh, in regards to Islam, and then I was first, instead of stamping it classified, which I couldn't do anyway, I was going to first give it to the American public, and then I would give it to law enforcement and the media and our politicians, but the American public would get the information first, so they could demand that our government leaders actually go out and start doing their job. Mm-hmm. So that's what I, I started in 2003. And many people don't know, CARE, the Council on American-Islamic Relations, is essentially the, the right hand of Saudi Arabia as far as Sunni Islam. CARE says they represent uh, all Muslims, where to them, when you start talking to them, if which we did, my researchers did, all Muslims mean all pure Muslims, which you can only be a pure Muslim, first of all, if you're Sunni. So when they say they represent all Muslims, they try to put it off as we represent Shi'i and the other sects of Islam, too. But their key word is we represent all Muslims. So 
the only true Muslims to them, you first of all have to be Sunni. Mm. So uh, that's one of the parts of the Kia that they use and deceit. But from 2003 through about 2007, I started going out and training law enforcement on how to how to deal with Islamic-based terrorism here in, you know, in Dallas and West Virginia. I went all through the U.S. doing that because they weren't getting the proper training. They were not given the, the facts about Islam. The majority of uh, American law enforcement and our military do not speak one iota, one bit of Arabic. And when I was in Iraq, I saw so many people, young soldiers and airmen who lost their lives because they did not speak just a little bit of Arabic. I saw some of our soldiers who would approach a car and they didn't even know the word for bomb, explosive, mm. IEDs, police. They didn't know those basic words, how to say hello or thank you. And those words could actually save uh, people's lives, and I saw where it did in, in my instance. Once we pulled over a car at Nasiriya, and it had a, a probably five or six Iranians in it, because at the start of 2003 in the war, the Iranians were coming in by the tens of thousands into Iraq, because predominantly the people in, in Iraq are Shi'i, but of course Saddam was Sunni, mm -hmm. so that was an opportunity for the Iranians to come in and try to take over Iraq. But we pulled over this one car, and it was just me and another agent. We were out patrolling the city, and we saw a group. We could recognize them as Iranian, and I could go into why we could recognize them as that. But sure. we pulled them over, put a little light on top of a car, pulled them over, and first of all, approaching the car, we noticed they had... They had several types of machine guns. They had hand grenades in the labs, an RPG in the back of the of the car. And at first, when I approached the car, I mean, I could tell because I had done it to hundreds, pulled people over. I knew what was going to happen. You had one guy with his hand on a grenade with his finger on the pin ready to pull it out. Mm. And the first thing I did was walk up to the car and started speaking this basic Arabic to him. Hello, how are you doing? Uh, my name is this. And they were so shocked that they they looked at me and my and the other agent and they took their hand off the grenade because they were so shocked that, hey, this guy's speaking some Arabic to us. He's actually being polite. And it gave us that opportunity then to pull our weapons on them and then to disarm them. Mm -hmm. But I saw many of our soldiers who knew no Arabic and they approached a car, and then uh, they ended up getting, uh, you know, died through an explosion. Kid. So when I came back from Iraq, I put together a book for law enforcement and military. It was Arabic for law enforcement and military, just basic greetings, about uh, 200 words or so, that would help possibly save their lives, whether it be in Dallas or whether it be in Nasiriya. But I started training law enforcement from 2003 through about 2007, and this gets into your question about CARE, how I got involved with CARE. But from 2003 to 2007, I wanted to get into the, the head of CARE. I wanted to know how they operate, 
and you can't go uh, learn about your enemy when you're doing it from an adversarial type role. Sure. If I were to start, you know, speaking negative about care at the time, I would have never got in, infiltrated with them. What I started doing in 2003 was hiring care leaders in different cities to go out with me when I spoke to law enforcement. So I was in the backgrounds after our training sessions, we would go to the hotels, have dinner, etc. And then they would start telling me the behind the scenes, this is how Islam operates. Can I? Oh, do can, Go ahead. Can, can I uh, just? Uh, I want to put a pin on that for just one second. I just have one quick question because um, when when you were doing the intelligence and everything overseas, um, with with that, um, was that? I, I, and, and if you can't talk about it, or if you're not comfortable, talk, but as far as domain mapping and and uh, things of that nature, was that? A, I, I know that social media, uh, you know, in 2003 wasn't what it is now. Right. But was there an aspect, or it, was there a forerunner, or anything like that? I, you know, I, I don't. You know, I'd be, obviously, if you can't talk about it or don't want to talk about it, I understand. But as far as human domain mapping and and as I understand it, it got its start in the Middle East, and it, it was specifically for um, you know being able to to track the circles of you know one's one's circles and one's one's habits and and everything like that. Did you have the benefit of that at that point, or was that something that sort of evolved after you know after? No, we actually had been doing stuff like that for a couple of decades that, that I was in federal service and the military and um, as an agent in law enforcement, but it was a much slower system. It, it took longer to put the pieces of the puzzle together. I got gotcha. you. That was the, that was the big difference. When people have been doing this for centuries, you know what you're talking about. But the uh, advantage of technology is if I had a thousand pieces that I'd obtained about different profiles on people and their cultures and different aspects of the, of the people, now you could throw it in the computer and it would give you the answers a, a lot faster than what we had to do decades ago okay and and so okay and we'll we'll get okay that that's fine and we may circle back to that uh once we get into but i'll, I'll let you get back into care there uh, just as well, you were talking about that, that was an important question when you're talking about trying to profile people and what you do trying to put the pieces of the puzzle together because i can't get into the whole program but sure when i was in saudi arabia before we went into iraq I was at a base called RR, A-R-A-R, and it's right on the border of um, Iraq and, and Saudi Arabia. It was in Saudi Arabia, and a very small town, and I got there about three months, almost four months before we actually went into Iraq, and so when they say we went into Iraq in 2003, and I've and I said that I was the first federal agent to ever go into Iraq, uh, you know, during and before the conflict is because even months before the conflict, we did missions in Iraq. But even with the Saudi commanders on the ground at RR, it was a joint facility that we were using, you know, in the prep to the war. One of the things that you look for in people is when you're trying to, you know, 
put the pictures of the puzzle together. You try to find out about the leadership. Hmm. It's simple things as, okay, does this commander, what kind of a car does he drive? What about his family? Does he smoke? You're using things to potentially blackmail these individuals in the future if you could put pieces together. Mm -hmm. And so we were doing that, and, and it's, it's done even more so now. Gotcha. But going back to how I used CARE in 2003 to seven, so I could understand their background, how they operate, you know, truly when they think that I support them. And they thought that I did. They, there was several, they contacted the media in Dallas and, and uh, D.C., and they did stories on me about how I'm helping law enforcement and and. Uh, uniting the Muslim community with uh, with law enforcement and and essentially all I was doing though is trying to get into the background of these individuals who I was later going to be targeting and these various operations legal operations sure. which I'm going to describe. Mm -hmm. Okay, did you have a question about that? No, 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 no. You can okay. you can go on into it. Well, yeah. Uh, in 2007, early 2007, I was contacted by uh, individuals working with the Center for Security Policy in Washington, D.C., a conservative think tank. And the uh, director, founder of that organization was uh, Frank Gaffney, who had been the Undersecretary of Defense for President Ronald Reagan. And Frank Gaffney and his, uh, some of his leaders, David Yerushalmi, uh, one of the best attorneys in the U.S., uh, they knew and had heard about the work that I had done for the government and my undercover-type work, putting teams together undercover. And so they contacted me and wanted to know if I would put together a team of five or six people. This is in 2007 put them undercover inside CARE National, again, which is nothing more than Hamas, the Muslim Brotherhood, the right hand of Saudi Arabia. They want to know if I could put a team together for up to about six months and determine what they are all about. Not just second-hand information. Again, they wanted first-hand information, and, they wanted, and I only relied on first-hand type evidence. So I uh, agreed to do so if, as long as I got to pick the five or six people. Right. Because I wanted, uh, in order to do an undercover operation, the success of that operation is going to be the people that you select to go undercover. If you have the wrong people, it's, it's going to be a failure right from the very, very beginning. And you potentially had a lot to lose given the power that, that this organization has. Well, um, we had a lot to lose to include uh, our life, mm -hmm. uh, plus uh, financially being sued, you know, because these organizations sue everybody. They do it in order to keep the people in line. It's a part of the definition of terrorism. They uh, care has sued so many low-level police officers, teachers in our schools. The first time that they get signs that maybe a teacher doesn't want to have a, an Islamic program in their school uh, where the kids are having to, you know, pray to Allah, you know, symbolizing doing that, 
then CARE jumps in, will sue these people, and they know that their superintendents and the school boards and others, the community, is not going to stand up and protect them. So it puts the fear in our teachers. That's why you don't have as many people standing up because they've seen their co-workers sued. You've got law enforcement, street level, who want to do a good job. They understand that there's things going on maybe at a particular mosque where they're getting information about potentially even child marriage stuff or terrorism. But then again, they've seen other officers who get sued by care, and their police chief or sheriff won't stand up for them. So it puts fear in all the police officers. They're afraid to, to stand up and do something. Dave, are they behind? Are, are they behind? Um, I don't know if you heard the story, but parents, you know, this is this is several years old, but parents, you know, outraged over, um, you know, a writing assignment for young children. Yeah. And it was, there is no God other than Allah. Right. Now, yeah, that's what I was referring to okay. when the teachers started getting sued okay. and, and whatnot, is because of programs such as that. Yes, of course, anytime there's any lawsuits, major lawsuits like that, you can be guaranteed it's one of the acronym organizations like CARE, ISNA, MANA, MSA. Most people don't know all these other acronyms of the Islamic organizations, but they are all with that one objective, and the only reason, and as CARE told us during the undercover operation, the only reason they have all of these dozens of other organizations like ISNA, the Islamic Society of North America, is so it will confuse the American people, it will confuse law enforcement, and if one happens to get shut down, then they still have a dozen others mm. that are operating. But Frank Gaffney had asked me to put the team together, and so I wanted to make sure that I had the, the right people for the team. Now, many people would say, well, why don't you go out and hire police officers? To, you know, to be on your team. They, you know, already know the investigation kind of network, how that operates. They know the legalities of certain things you can do, can't do. But with me being former law enforcement and studying Islam for 30 years almost already at that time, I knew that there's, with, when you work, I used to do a lot of work undercover with gangs like uh, the Bloods, the Crips, MS-13, and narcotics um, gangs. Um, I was involved in a lot of undercover operations like that. <laughs> With that, you want people who have what's called like the gift of gab, where they can go in and they can start talking to these gang members, and, 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 and you know, that's how they obtain intelligence. With Islamic groups, when you're doing undercover work with Islamic groups, the last thing you want is someone going in practicing the gift of gab who just talks, 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 has an ego already, think they know everything, think they can, you know, solve the crime. They're the best investigators in the world. That's the very last thing that you want. You want people who are going to go in, who are going to be more humble, sit back, say nothing, just listen. And that's how you get information from Islamic leaders, is you do just the opposite you would in gangs and narcotics type activity. You go in and your people need to, and Islamic um, 
undercover operations, you've got to understand Sharia law. And that's the one thing that I train my people on. My lead researcher, who is the best investigator in America, I would consider, is, is my son, is Chris Gobbets. Uh, is he knew nothing about Islam, knew nothing about care, but he was interested. He wanted to protect America and do his small part and you know what he could for America to educate. Americans and law enforcement in regards to Islamic-based terrorism. So he had the heart. Is one thing I was looking at for an undercover person. They had to have the heart. They had to love this country with all their heart. That was the one thing that I looked for. Second, they had to be kind of humble. They didn't weren't in it for the glory. They were there just to you know to listen. And um, and the, many people don't know how I found the other four or five undercover people. They weren't high-profile people. They didn't have backgrounds and like citizen journalists and stuff. They didn't have that kind of background. They knew nothing about Islam. I went on Craigslist in 2007, and I put an ad for administrative assistance to, to help me out with just a small business that I had at my home administratively so that it would give me an opportunity to learn about that person, see what makes them tick, see if they have what it takes, if their life is threatened, are they going to go berserk, or how are they going to react? Because it's very important when you're dealing with Al-Qaeda or ISIS-type-minded people that if you put in a jam, how are you going to react? I mean, your life and the lives of other people around you are in jeopardy if they don't know how to handle themselves. So I was able to evaluate another four to five people, and I got them on my team slowly. And then I uh, told Frank Gaffney, who, again, was Ronald Reagan's Undersecretary of Defense. I, I told him, I said, I'm ready. We can start you know, doing tests to get in, because to get in Care National, one would think, well, they have a fortress, that they have so many security procedures, how are you going to get people in undercover inside Care National? How do you, how do you go about doing that? You know, this is the Muslim Brotherhood, Hamas, uh, the, you know, the security's got to be very tight. So before I could just start sending somebody up there, I had to have a reason to be sending them. Well, CARE has a program where they actually, I say hire, it's through no pay, but they have uh, about 20 to 25 interns come in for about six months at a time, and then they, they devote their labor up to 40 hours plus a week, you know, to CARE. So I train my people under Sharia how to dress, how their mannerisms, there's so many things that come with Sharia that people don't understand. When I go into a mosque, I, I can go into a mosque within 10 to 15 seconds and I can tell you what sect of Islam it is. Is it Shia? Is it Sunni? And is this pro person, you know, a very, very pure Muslim who advocates Sharia 100%? And a lot of it is based on their manner of dress. A simple thing is when you go into a mosque, that if you wear jeans, which most people wear some kind of just pants or jeans, then you've got to roll up the, 
the bottom of the pants about three inches above the ankle. That's in order to keep the devil out, shaitan, mm. uh, to keep the devil out of the mosque. It makes no sense, but it doesn't have to make sense. That's a part of Sharia. You know, and a simple thing is Sharia is really based on doing everything opposite the Christian and the Jew. And I'll give you a couple good examples of that when I, when I say that is do everything opposite the Christians and the Jew. Now, for instance, most Christians and Jews, the majority, if you wear a watch, what arm do you normally put it on? Uh, I ask you, Sean. My oh, left. Normally. Left, left, oh, left arm. Yeah, on the left. Normally, not always, but routinely you'll see Christians and Jews put it on their, their left arm. Now, when you wear a wedding ring, it's normally gold, you know, for the male, normally gold, and which hand does it go on? On the left hand. So under Sharia law, you do everything opposite the Christians and the Jew. Oh, wow. If I were a watch, it goes, when you start, when you start watching the pure Muslims, like when I used to watch Osama bin Laden, when he'd come on and do interviews, you, our law enforcement had no idea what to look for Sharia compliance. But you would notice that, well, he's got the watch on the right hand. He's got a silver ring, if he wore a ring, on the right hand and not on the, on the left. There's so many things that are opposite. Like, uh, for instance, um, most uh, Christians and Jews, if you have a beard, you normally have a mustache. Not all the time, so there's all kinds of fads, but normally mm -hmm. you do. you got a mustache. So under Sharia law, you have a beard, but you're supposed to shave the mustache so that you'll be opposite the Christians and the Jews. Can I ask you a question real quick? Yeah. Okay, so I'm trying to I'm trying to determine this. Is it is it just because they're being opposite? Is it a right hand of God type thing? Is no, it No, they're being op they want to be opposite <laughs> because they consider the Christians and the Jews as the most evil people in the world, worthy of killing them anywhere in the world whether it be West Virginia or Saudi Arabia. So it's a it's a spiritual so thing. It's it, it's basically yeah, they consider okay. them to be as close to the devil, Shaitan, as you could possibly be. Okay. It's nothing to do with uh, really the right or the left because if Christians and Jews were to wear their watches and rings on the right hand, then they would choose the left hand. It's just that they 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 feel they're righteous and, and they're going to do... Okay, I got you. Yeah, I, they, they want to okay. do the opposite of what the, their most evil enemy in the world does. Okay, I got you. And, and, and so that's what I trained my people on is how to properly dress, what to wear, how to wear, do you wear, when to wear shoes and socks, do you wear socks in a mock? Many people don't know that. You know, when a, when the men go in, do they have to wear socks? Or do you not wear socks? Well, it's a 50-50. Hmm. You know, you, you never know. It, it doesn't matter if you wear socks or don't wear socks in a mosque as long as your feet and your toenails are clean. Hmm. But that was all a part of Sharia. So I taught them every aspect of Sharia so they could go in. See, if when I would train law enforcement, I trained many FBI, and they tried to put people undercover in mosques, and they'd go in with a, you know, a gold watch on their left arm, and they would have a beard with a full mustache, and they would try to go in as pure Muslims. You can't do that. You spot it automatically when you do stuff like that. Mm -hmm. When you, if if 
if I go into a mosque and don't know how to roll up my jeans, I could be saying everything correctly, but they're going to give me no information because they they say, well, he's not Sharia compliant. He's not Muslim. He doesn't know what he's doing. Gotcha. So that's what I taught my researchers to do. Go in Sharia compliant. Now remember, let's say there's 25 interns inside care during that period. Five of them are mine. 20 of them are legitimate college students, whatever, who want to go in and help care. They're Muslim. My five were not Muslim. They were they were all Christian, and they knew nothing about Islam, but they knew more about Sharia law than the legitimate Muslims did, the interns coming in. My people actually knew how to behave in accordance with Sharia law. They knew the proper way to pray, you know, in, in a mosque. A lot of people don't know that. Mm-hmm. But uh, I taught them things like that. So immediately, my people were the ones that rose to the top within care. The care leaders like Nihad Awad and Abraham Hooper, the public spokesperson who's always on the news for care. Mm-hmm. They started picking my interns for the special projects because they, not that they were talking a lot, but they were Sharia compliant, they listened, they wanted to learn, and um, so that's what they started doing, and and there come a, a couple projects, like they needed the head of security for care, and um, so... Who did they pick for a head of security for care to go to their banquets and other functions that they may have? They picked my son as the head of security for care. And care, although they had a lot of security guidelines, they didn't follow them. And that's the first mistake of any organization is you don't follow your own guidelines. That's that's how I got my people in because I did test subjects first to go inside care to see, well, what kind, do they check their IDs? Do they go out and check their, you know, tags on the vehicle? Do they do any vetting, let's call it using that term again? Mm -hmm. And I found out immediately that they didn't. They had all kinds of written rules that they're supposed to check their driver's license. They had people in law enforcement who they would run their driver's license through. They had all that on paper, but they didn't implement it. So that's how I got my five people in. Never once were any of my five people ever asked to produce any type of identification. Not once. And so immediately, you know, they were able to get in. They were trusted. And they come to a, came to a point in care where uh, Nihad Awad needed, I mean, literally box after box of, information documents shredded because it did contain criminal evidence. He didn't come out and tell the interns that it has criminal evidence, but he had a basement full of boxes that needed to be shredded. And so he got the group of 25 interns together and said, we've got all of these documents. we got to get rid of them. Who would like to volunteer to do this? Well, all they had was a $19 shredder, their mm. care, and none of these college students, the legitimate Muslims, none of them wanted to sit there all day, one page after another, sh- 
shredding documents. But the people who raised their hands said, I'll do it, were my, my people, the people I had undercover in there. And immediately, Chris and the other interns who were doing the sh shredding or looking at the documents noticed that it contained criminal evidence where CARE was saying to, they needed people to start supporting Al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden and many, many other things that were criminal in nature. And so my son came to me and said, hey, Dad, this is what's in these documents, and I don't want to really shred them. What do we do? Well, we had a decision to make. We, I got with the attorneys, and, and we all decided, hey, we don't want this criminal evidence shredded because we want to turn it over to law enforcement at the end of this program. Mm -hmm. And so I, we decided, I told my son, go back the next day, tell Nihad Awad and Ibrahim Hooper that you've got a plan for these thousands of documents instead of spending hours and days shredding one piece by one piece that if they would help get it all loaded up into my son's car that he would take it to one of the big shredders in Washington D.C. And, and within a matter of minutes all these boxes would just be dumped and shredded and be over with. Hmm. Well, they thought that was a perfect idea, Nihat Awad and his his leaders. So they all helped get all these boxes into my son's car, and then my son immediately drove to the hotel where I was at and gave me all the all the documents, all the boxes, so that we could preserve them. And I took them in as evidence and started cataloging everything that we got. Well, this went on over well over six months. And, 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 Sean, I have to ask you a question at this point. Go for it. Are you familiar with the 35 Jami and Al-Fukra compounds throughout the U.S.? Are, are they the, is that the, they're, they're a school, basically? They they have some type of, uh, were no, they? No, you're thinking of a, 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 an actual type school, okay. Islamic school. No, okay, this no. is where no. Jami and Al-Fukra compounds are based out of, under a leader of terrorists wanted by the U.S., Jelani, out of Pakistan. Hmm. And there's 35 compounds in the U.S. which are terrorist training camps. And if any one of your listeners want to Google uh, Jamad al-Fukra or terrorist training camps in America, they, they will pop up. But there's about 35 of them. I mean, some of them are huge compounds. I put up people undercover in these compounds for up to two weeks at a time. Now, let me back up. Were these were were was one of these compounds where the brothers they found the 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 corpses of the children and everything like that? Or am I that am was I actually uh, am I confusing? Son that? of uh, Imam Siraj Wahaj that I was talking about. Yeah. Okay. Earlier, his son in New Mexico. Okay. Who was the No, that was not one of the compounds. Okay. okay. I got gotcha. you. Uh, if if you were to type in. Red House, R-E-D, and then House, Virginia, mm -hmm. terrorist compound. People would uh, be able to pull them up and start seeing what it's all about. But it's these people who follow the Pakistani terrorists. They set up training camps in the U.S., all across the U.S., in various states, east coast or west coast. So as my operation was going on inside CARE, people started to, I was kind of vocal, I was out vocal because I wasn't directly inside care, 
so I would try to stir up things in the media so they can get the reactions of the like Nihat Awad and CARE and my son and other researchers could report back to me what they were talking about after I'd done something. Mm. I got to put something out in the media and then Nihat Awad would be upset and start talking to my son and saying we need to stop this guy Dave Govitz and etc you know and up to various various threats against me and and I got to see the reaction so I kept the care leaders busy focus on me so they couldn't focus on the real work was you know developing plans to really to overthrow uh, America mm. but um what I had had during this time, since I was in the media quite a bit, I started having people from these terrorist, Islamic terrorist camps who started contacting me. And one of them was in Red House, Virginia, only about 40 miles from where I live. And, and he told me when he, he contacted me, he said, uh, Dave, I've read about the work you do against, you know, care. I know that we have major differences, but he said the one thing we have in common, he says that we neither one of us like CARE and what they do. Now they did not like CARE because CARE had, over the years, had taken tens of thousands of dollars from these Jamiat uh, Al-Fuqa compounds because members from these compounds would approach CARE and say, can you help me with passports or this other type of legal work, whatever it may be. And uh, CARE would then essentially just steal their money and never do any work for them. Hmm. So they asked me, they said, <coughs> will you work with us and file in lawsuits against CARE and in return we'll give you tons of information. Mm-hmm about care and what they're really up to and they they told me now this is coming from terrorists Mm -hmm. inside compounds i visited their compounds and they said dave will you get us the best attorney that you can the best attorneys and i said well what do you consider the best attorney and they said well the best attorneys in the world are jewish attorneys so they wanted Jewish attorneys <laughs> for Muslim terrorists. And I said, sure, you know, I had the perfect person. David Yurishami, who was essentially my boss within the uh, CARE project. And uh, so I started going around getting sworn affidavits from these Muslim uh, terrorists uh, and, and giving them to Yurishami, who filed them in federal courts against CARE about all the atrocities and thefts that CARE had been doing against their own Muslim people. They're supposed to be supporting the Muslim people, and here they are stealing tens of thousands of dollars, and we had affidavits from Muslims saying that they were doing that. Mm-hmm. So just in federal court, just last year, I think it was, uh, actually uh, CSP, the Center for Security Policy, won the case against CARE based on these um they're representing muslim terrorists <laughs> but it was a give and take they did give us lots of information on how care operates i'm, I'm pretty sure that uh, uh and again i've never read the the terrorist handbook or the muslim handbook but 
um, I'm pretty sure that uh, a Jewish attorney kind of would make you an apostate. <laughs> I, I don't well, know. Remember, but <laughs> before the advancement of Islam, it doesn't. I got gotcha. you. I got gotcha. you. know, that's the key of deception. As long as something fits in the plan of advancing Islam, it's perfectly legal. Wow. It's perfectly okay to do it. Gotcha. So a Jewish attorney, if it would advance their cause... That's exactly where they would go because they said Prophet Muhammad would do the same thing. Yeah, but anyway, we needed to shut uh, the operation down after the several months we were in there, and we trying to figure out how to do it. We had affidavits that we need from a federal judge that we needed to be served to all the care executives, many of them in different states who were involved in you know, the theft of taking money from fellow Muslims, stealing money from them, so we didn't know how to really close down the operation. And then we decided, well, the best way to serve all these subpoenas to the executive leaders was to get them all together at one place and then serve them then. Mm -hmm. So every year, CARE has a banquet, an annual banquet, where they invite senior law enforcement from all over uh, invite these interfaith and ministers but they have maybe up to a thousand people at their banquet and that means they're going to have all the executive leaders there at the one time so that the uh, we would be able to serve them subpoenas but how do you do that you know how do i get in and, and sort of passing these subpoenas out but again, my son was head of security for CARE, so it was kind of easy to get in the banquet. And what we did was you had Nihad Awad up on stage, and you had, I think it was Congressman Keith Ellison, or Andre Carson, I can't remember who it was. One of the congressmen was actually speaking, and that was the time when Nihad Awad was on stage that I needed to be able to get up there and serve him his subpoena. And that mm -hmm. would be the the key then for all my other interns working there to start passing out these subpoenas to other executives and to actually giving them to law enforcement were there and other high people in politics and Hollywood who were there so they could see what CARE was really all about. So we had hundreds of these subpoenas that we wanted to get passed out. So the only way that I could get up on stage, and the only way I could get in is I dressed as a actually a blind Muslim, you know, with the glasses, the cane, and I had a an African American lady who was who came in Sharia compliant as a Muslim, who would help me get through the crowd and everything in there because I'm blind. We sit at a table, and then when I think thought it was time to go up on stage. There was four security that the congressman had around the stage, but I knew because I'd done my research, the way that I could get up on stage, first of all, the security is going to be hesitant if it's a blind man, you know, an older blind man walking up on stage, they're not going to run in and tackle him, which I was hoping they wouldn't anyway. Sure. And then also that I had this lady with me that was beside me, there was uh, an African-American lady who was helping me up on stage. So 
the security, I kind of, I walked by them, and we just kind of nodded at security, and they looked and nodded back, didn't know what to do, and I got up on stage, and I tapped Nihad Awad on the shoulder, and he said, who are you, what do you want? And I said, I'm here to serve you a subpoena by a federal judge based on your theft of money from Muslim people you're supposed to represent. And they didn't know that we had been in care for six months. They had no idea my researchers who were there at the banquet were a part of my team. And that was the key then. All these researchers just started passing out hundreds of affidavits to people. And, uh, and that's how we ended up closing the operation because after that night, they knew that those interns were actually belonged to me because we went in the media the next day and said they did. And, Mm-hmm. And we closed it that way, but that day one that my book came out, Muslim Mafia, they didn't know that it was also coincided with that day. They did not know that we had that operation going until that book came out that morning. But I think as I discussed with you, we knew that immediately if CARE finds out that you've had people undercover in the organization, and then you write a book about it, about taking 13,000 of their documents, mm. that they're going to sue you. I mean, they sue for a lot less. Sure. Well, they didn't realize uh, the people that we had, you know, in the background, the attorneys and other people, the Center for Security Policy and my publisher, World Net Daily. They had no idea that we had all these people. They they thought it was this little Dave Goblitz and his son. They didn't realize the extent of it. So day one, they went to court. You talk about the Constitution and the First Amendment. They say they believe in it. Well, they wanted the book banned, and they told the federal judge that they wanted me to return the twelve to 13,000 documents back to them because they said Dave Govett stole our documents. And as you and I discussed, we were kind of in the back clapping our hands because when they told the federal judge that uh, I had their documents and they wanted them back, the federal judge essentially asked them, are you sure you want to say this? Right. And they, they said yes. And what they did was admit to a federal judge day one after the operation stopped that those 12,000 documents were theirs. Legit. And everything in there, the criminal activity, was indeed theirs. So it saved us years of having to authenticate those 12,000 documents because day one they admitted to a federal judge that it belonged to them. Wow. So that, that's kind of how it ended and, and that lawsuit started in 2009 and it's still going on today. Wow. It has not ended in 2021. With we, the- haven't went, we haven't went to court yet. Millions of dollars have been spent and that's what CARE does. They, uh, they told Chris and my other researchers, when they sue someone, they don't care if they win or lose at the end. They want to drain that person emotionally and financially, and then at the end, they know the media is going to ignore it if it's against care, and if it's for care, then uh, the media is going to support them. Do you think, do you think that well, there is a way to strengthen legislation to uh, avoid lawfare 
from organizations like this i mean i mean i, I don't really you know this that, that's a little out of my wheelhouse and and maybe yours too but um you know i think you've seen it enough to uh, to you know if there are legislators listening um you know w- w- what how how do you because eventually it's it's whoever has the most money is going to win you you know you see it you see it well for example like with the info wars you know it's lawsuit after lawsuit after lawsuit after you know and so lawfare is as dangerous to democracy as <laughs> i mean in a, in a way I, I you know i mean i realize that the courts are but but how do we fix that well, I, I, ten years ago, I said I would have said, you know, well, we have a level playing field in America, and there has got to be a, a way within the justice system to to fix this. But you know, over time, I've come to realize we don't have a level playing field. Even with the Supreme Court, we have a six to three majority conservative. It's not a level playing field. Mm-hmm. The the Democrats don't play uh, a level game. They um, they have the media, they have Hollywood, the universities. They they don't play fair. They don't even pretend to play fair. We essentially had an election stolen from the best president uh, or one of the best presidents the country's ever had. I agree. So is there some kind of legislation now that you think that, I mean, not you, but right. we, the American people, think that, uh, some politicians are going to get together and stop what CARE is doing, which is nothing but lawfare jihad is what they are engaged in, and that's what they call it, another form of jihad. They use the pen, the tongue, and the sword, and that's just another form of jihad for them. Uh, there are so many uh, uh, Democrats who stand up and every day support. They know all about CARE and CARE being a terrorist organization, but they still support CARE. The media will support CARE before they will you and I. You know, and, and I went into Iraq and done other things, and you've done uh, different things. We're good American patriots, but they will support a terrorist organization before they will you and I. So is there some something that can be done now that some politicians are going to come up where that's not nice to play that way in court. No, mm-hmm. it, it's not because the Democrats aren't nice. They know what's going on, and and they support stuff what CARE does, and they support the lawsuits that CARE is involved in. Many of these politicians have publicly supported CARE in their lawsuits. Is it is it dollars or dirt that drives their support? It can't be ideology. It can't be. No, that's not ideology. It's it's the power. They gotcha. know that, well, first of all, politicians, why are they bringing millions of illegal immigrants in and want to give amnesty up to maybe 11-plus million people? It's not because they like the people or they care about the people. It's because of the, the votes that they would get. Uh, uh, Democratic politicians also know that if you pander to uh, to care, that you're you're going to likely get millions of uh, Muslim votes through that. They they don't care about it. It's not about the ideology. And votes equates to politicians as money. Hmm. So it goes back to the money and the power. So, in my backyard, I'm looking at a picture here. I'm seeing a book, Sharia: The Way of Justice. I'm seeing legislating fear. 
I'm seeing a course on Islamic Sharia. Uh, and it could go on and on. And as I understand it, there's thousands in this in this library. Um, Are you talking about an Islamic library? Well, well, the um, on uh, in the mosque that you went into oh, okay. Um, okay. in on One Valley Drive, South Charleston. Right. Um, right. So let's talk here in West Virginia, and I, I'm I'm I knew that it was there, and like I said, I it had caught my attention. It, it just again just running into socialists. Um, but it's just one of those things you maybe maybe I just wanted to deny that it was there and the cognitive dissonance I, I don't know but uh, like I said I I heard your interview with on the Tom Roten show in, in June uh-huh. and uh, I, you know it was one of those flag moments that um, you know hey uh, you know this is important but it's you know also one of those things where life goes by and uh, uh, you know we're we're back though and we're here um, and it's even worse than I could have dreamed of um, you know uh, uh, you know you you have rated the mosque extremely dangerous um, right. the highest rating uh, that you can give a mosque on the scale of one to ten and so um, one thing that you know, I, I I guess, and maybe as it's I'm you know as an analyst and in, in security and everything else, I mean I, I'm I'm sure that you have seen patterns and yeah. working in the public sector, I I, I do as well, and uh, I I deal with I talk to a lot of different people in in the sales industry, and I have noticed more of a I guess a well, it's it's just a pattern that the majority of the people that I talk to from, you know, this this you know the, the Charleston area, the majority of requests that I get, uh, you know, through sales and things like that, sales leads, are predominantly um, Middle Eastern. And um, okay. as far as the the I guess first starting with with the mosque, what, what is the average niche here in West Virginia? Um, I, I'm going to assume that they're they're probably educated, professional background, probably something, um, you know. Uh, well, that would be with the leadership. You, mm-hmm. You're talking about they're very well educated, most of them, in either Iran or, or Saudi Arabia or many Islamic schools, many of them PhDs. But the, the majority of the worshipers would range from just what you may see in a church, someone who... You know, at a lower uh, paying job versus a you know a doctor in a hospital, you're going to see a wide range of people. You're going to see, and with the women, a lot of people don't know. Some people are starting to catch on to different aspects of Sharia, but there's absolutely nothing within the Quran or said by uh, Prophet Muhammad that a woman has to go to a mosque, she does not have to go to a mosque. It's not a requirement within Islam that she goes to a mosque to pray. It's only if her guardian or her husband allows her to go, and it's the same in America. You will see some that um, that actually go, and it's fewer than, the, much fewer than the, the men, and when they do go, they're always separated, either into a separate building itself, where they just have a monitor that they can listen to the imam, 
or it may be behind a, a wall of where the men are at, but they're always separated, but there's no requirement for a female to actually go to a mosque. Mm. Okay. Never. Gotcha. The house is where they're supposed to remain. I, I have this, this plan that, you know, given that we have the PC culture, mm-hmm. I have this plan to get the entire, you know, Muslim, uh, you know, uh, just I, I have I'm I'm going to get the entire thing canceled. I think Dave, and how I'm going to yeah. do that is by, you know, we have cancel culture and it's it's extremely powerful. So I think what I'm going to do is is write to these imams here in Charleston and ask that you know that that's a little offensive to me. I I think they need to be referred to as I persons now, not imams. Mom is sort of a uh, <laughs> no, nah, I'm I'm being facetious, I'm sorry, yeah, but I like but, <laughs> but but I think that would you know if we could just get them canceled, I think that would fix everything. You mean get what canceled? Mom? <laughs> well, <laughs> I, well, the, the, well, let's shoot for the faith and entirely and but no, I'm I'm just I'm just joking there, but uh but no uh you know it it is though and that's one thing that that again there's this duality and i don't understand how they how you know it, it, if it's atrocious to a person you know to overtalk a woman or to what's called mansplain you know to the same woke people that want to turn around and say oh well yeah, he, you know, he, you know, it's his culture to 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 want to marry a seven year old, rape a seven year old. <laughs> right, it's his culture. So you know, um, and and so I don't understand how you can be, you know, how I just I don't understand the duality there, and I guess I'm going off on a a little bit of a tangent, but uh, well, I have too, Sean. I've seen it. You would think. A lot of these liberal women's groups would be standing up for the uh, the Muslim women who have been abused, who continue to be abused, the female children uh, who are being mutilated, who are being married at such a young age. But then again, they um, they know that these women have, have absolutely no power. The liberal women in these feminist groups do not care about. Uh, other women. They don't care about these young girls from the Middle East who are being abused or even the young girls here in America. It all comes down to uh, liberal or conservative. If liberals are doing it, it's fine. If conservatives do it, then it's criminal activity being done. I have to bring up, I think now's the point where I, I talk about exactly what you hit on and and that's where they talk about where it's their culture. And you may have heard this story before. I'm not sure if I talked about it on Tom's show. But uh, for your listeners, I had uh, myself and a female researcher went to Nashville, Tennessee a few years ago. And we were going to spend about two weeks in this particular Somalian mosque where Somalians from Minnesota had, by the hundreds, had moved to Nashville, set up a mosque, and so we went there for about two weeks, and we, again, we're going in, we're going in as practicing Muslims, and I started noticing in their library at the mosque, there's tons of information advocating child marriages, just 
information from Saudi Arabia directly telling the man it's their responsibility to behave like Muhammad, marry young children when, when you possibly can, encourage it, encourage your sons to do it. All kinds of materials in there about that. And me and this, my female researchers started going to Sharia classes at this Nashville mosque. And while we were in the class, there was this little girl who was sitting next to my female researcher, and the little girl told my researcher, she said, my arms are hurting, and my legs hurt, and my back's hurting. And my researcher said, honey, what, what's wrong? And the little girl <clears throat> showed my researcher the bruises and the welts on her backs and her, on, on her legs. My researcher said, well, what happened to you? And the little girl said, the imam and others, they hit us when we don't do things right in Sharia. They beat us. And we'd witness the Islamic leaders going around and hitting the, uh, the children with, like, cane-like. They were about two feet long, really thin, just whipping them with canes um, in the mosque. Young girls, five and six years old, and little boys they would beat. We witnessed that. And then this little girl, she said she was seven years old, and she said, and my husband does this, and my husband does this to me. Mm. And that's when I uh, said, okay, time out. That's what I told my researcher. It's time now when I find criminal activity like that that I immediately report it to law enforcement because I want to give them an opportunity <coughs> to do something about it, go in and protect this little Muslim girl. Mm. You know, you're supposed to have CARE and other organizations protecting the Muslim people, but I haven't contacted CARE and asked them to help this little girl, and they, they laughed at me and refused and said, this is mind your own business. Well, I expected that from them. I have expected it from politicians who I called on both sides of the aisle, and they said basically the same thing. Mind your own business. That's their culture. Mm. Leave them alone. You're an Islamophobe, a hater, and a racist. Okay, that's what I get from the left and the right, not just the, the left. I got it from the left and the right. And so I went to the sheriff and the police chief and to the FBI in Nashville, and I, we had everything on audio, video. We showed them what the little girl had said. We never put that out publicly uh, on video about her, but we showed it to law enforcement. And they essentially told us the same thing. Well, that's their culture. They have a right to do that. And, and I said, they don't have any right to do that in America. I said, in Saudi Arabia or Iran, they may have been given that right. In America, they have no right to abuse children. They have no right to be marrying uh, six- and seven-year-old little girls. Mm -hmm. They have no right to be raping little children. Not in America. It doesn't happen. Well, they, they refused to do anything, and so I then started putting all the law enforcement, the senior law enforcement, all of their information out on the Internet and what they had said. They weren't going to protect this innocent young child, and I do believe all children are innocent, Muslim, Christian, Jewish, whatever, Sure. that they're, that they're all innocent. And I wanted help for this little girl, and they said they weren't going to do it, so I put the information out. Finally, Child Protective Services did come in. They were able to uh, protect this one girl, 
and ended up that mosque was closed in, in Nashville. But that was only literally through an act of Congress that I got help for that little girl. So can you imagine what we're really up against in America? This isn't just happening in Nashville. It's happening in West Virginia. It's happening in my state of Virginia. When I go to the mosque, Sean, I told you I rely on evidence. Although I know what I'm to expect when I go to a mosque, I don't perceive that it's there unless I actually see it. And so, when, like when I went to Charleston, I have to see the evidence firsthand. Mm-hmm. And all through these mosques that I've been to across America, I see this information. I see uh, advocating for child marriages, for killing homosexuals here in America. I see that kind of material dated 2020 and stamped uh, the Saudi government. So I, I see that kind of information, and one would think it would be easy to get law enforcement or politicians to put an end to it. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine if there was a Baptist church, and inside the church they had material advocating child marriages? Oh, what wow. What happened? Yeah, Rightly absolutely. So you would have teams of law enforcement going in and raiding the place. They would investigate uh, the people at the church and go back a hundred years to find out what was going on yet they allow it here with the Muslim the Islamic groups to, and to do that it, it's two forms of justice it never should be allowed in America I don't care what religion you're claiming to be I, I want to touch on uh, Tennessee one one more second I want to um, I want to talk about a, a post that you made on your blog Okay. And it was an analysis, um, December 28th, uh, about the explosion in Tennessee. You said, uh, the deep state is in total control. You'll never be provided the truth about the RV explosion in Nashville. All news media are compromised and are as far from journalism as possible and more closely aligned as as communist cronies, similar to the pseudo-news media in China and Russia. There's still a handful of journalists left in America, but they will soon either comply or be forced to leave the profession. Now, I talked about an onion. Um, we're still within the same onion with that explosion. Is would would I be correct in in saying that to some point that that we have um, the same players, maybe higher level players, but um, or or am I off base on that? No, I, I think you're right in line. We have the same level players that uh, that we're talking about. Tennessee with the explosion and and it's only going to get worse and worse and worse it's not going to all of a sudden get better the only thing that's gotten better is the coronavirus and we all know that was political that once Biden came in then all of a sudden there's going to be a magical cure now we have people in place that hate this country political leaders that truly hate this country. They're not even ashamed to say they are ashamed of this country anymore, starting with Obama. They've built their They're career not, on it. They yeah, have they built, built their career. <laughs> AOC, they, they are not ashamed to say it. And during the McCarthy years of the 50s, when he would track down communists, I mean, they practice behind the scenes, but if they ever got called out, they would deny it. Oh, we love America. We love the flag. But now there's no hiding it. 
It's sporting events. They kneel to the flag. They're not hiding it, and the majority of people are behind them. They, you know, I'm talking about the team owners and the key players. They're, they all support that. And so now it's getting to be a majority of the people in America are behind the destruction of this great country. What are the... You had mentioned, you know, the the threat level from from right. this one particular mosque, just this right. mosque. But I know that that's going. There's a multiplier there. One mosque, one mosque is going to equal hundreds or thousands, possibly, of people. Right. What type of insurgency? Um, and I'm not talking about your, you know, like you said, I'm not talking about the apostate. I'm talking right. about radical. Well, again, and I understand. You're I understand. About a Muslim, yeah, Muslim, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let me let me change it. it. Yeah, it's let me. Like they use their terminology. Yeah, I need to. I need to. I need to fix that in in my in my thinking. Yeah, it's hard I do. to do because we've been programming. We have, but so it, it's normal. But what is what are we looking at for the for the West Virginians that are are listening? How many? What's what's a count? What's an estimated count of insurgents here in West Virginia right now who want nothing more than to destroy the American way of life through any means that they can? I'll give you a good example. If I can go to a mosque and find out everything that you saw in that affidavit and I can do it in two to three hours and I would testify under oath that this is what I found you have to people it's only common sense that if someone is going to a mosque every week four or five times they've been doing it for 10 20 years that they also know what's going on in that mosque the way that I would get my final analysis on what's going on within Islam in America is that the mosques are simply safe houses for terrorist sleeper cells. When it is time for action to be taken, a major terrorist advance or even a, a war within America that the Muslims know that they are in power, these sleeper cells are going to become active. And that's what mosques are. They're nothing but safe houses for people to do their planning, their strategies, they're like-minded, they're for pure Muslims. Now, I'll give you an example when I talk about the apostates, say, in your area of Charleston. Mm -hmm. I don't remember, I've been to so many mosques, but say that that mosque has, say, 1,000 members, which it's not near that, but say they had 1,000 members at that particular mosque. You may get 200 that actually I would consider pure Muslim out of that. The majority of Muslims in that area don't go to the mosque. They are the good people that identify. They are some of your neighbors and your doctors who, who were born into Islam and are so afraid. They've been terrorized themselves. They're so afraid to leave it because it's a death penalty offense. It doesn't matter if it's in South Charleston or if it's in Afghanistan. They've been programmed that you can die, and people do die, if you leave Islam. So out of a thousand people, say, in South Charleston, only about 200 are faithful, pure Muslims, as defined by the imams. So you have about 200, say, for instance, in South Charleston, and then you have 
3,500 known mosques and about six to 8,000 other mosques, you have hundreds of thousands of pure Muslims in America, and how many Muslims did it take on 9-11 to do damage? Mm-hmm. I gotcha. So if they had coordinated efforts, I've asked the moms this after I've got to know them and they, they trust me and, and truly believe that I'm Muslim, I've asked the moms, one at uh, uh, Al. Oh my goodness! Again, I can't even think of it. It's in Fairfax, Virginia, mm-hmm. Darlow Hedra, Darlow Hedra Mosque in Fairfax, Virginia. I had asked the one of the imams. They had two. I said, "What is going to be the next type of attack in America? Oh, are you going to have another 9/11? Or why hasn't there been another 9/11 type of attack?" And they said, "Dave, it's like this." They call me Daoud, Arabic name. They said, Dude, it's like this. In America right now, we are winning. So if we were to have another 9-11 type of attack in America, it would set our efforts back 30 years because we don't need one right now. We're winning in America. We got politicians, we got Hollywood, we got the media, we got everybody that we need. Things are falling into place. But what we will have are these so-called lone wolf attacks because immediately the mosque will say, oh, we denounce that attack, we hate terrorism, and and then the media, of course, cover for them, and law enforcement is out to protect, they'll stand in front of the mosque before they will you or I at our house to protect us. They'll uh, stand up for these people because their moms will denounce that terrorist acts. There is no such thing as a lone wolf attack. Mm-hmm. These things are, are coordinated. The people, the imams, know that they're going to happen, and then they can immediately just dis- distance themselves, just like in Boston and in Fort Hood. When you talk about Fort Hood, yeah, I was about to was say. <laughs> I was about to say, unless it happens at Fort Hood, and, and then uh, <laughs> and that was that was just you know just job uh, whatever they called it at the time. But, uh, no, that was a coordinated effort. The guy had been coordinating with terrorists. He'd been going to a local mosque. Uh, he very much knew what he was doing, and there were people that knew what that it was going to happen. The imams know. They don't have to go out and give a, and start telling people at the podium like they would do in the Middle East. They don't have to stand up there and say, I want you to go out and do something in Boston next week. They know there's enough people that are going to go out and do these things over a period of time and then they can just sit back and denounce them and the media and politicians are going to support uh, their Muslim groups over you and I and they will have armed guards outside the mosque instead of outside of our homes. Question. And uh, you've been very good. I really appreciate the uh, almost two and a half hours here. Um, oh, wow. you've, you've been very good uh, with it. I, um, and I by no means, you know, you go as long as you want. Uh, as long as I have room uh, <laughs> on my device, we're good. But um, let me, I don't know if you've thought about this. I haven't, uh, actually it popped into my head as we were talking, but... The Obama one of Obama's um, campaign uh, promises was that he was going to build a civilian force as powerful as 
the you know as powerful as the military basically and equally you know i i I forget exactly how he worded it right but now we've got what we have here is um the era of contact tracing again and it's it goes back i guess maybe to to domain mapping in 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 a sort of a way but with contact tracing is there a threat what is the what is the threat that we see the infiltration of contact tracers and people who and again maybe I'm just I'm trying to war game this but uh-huh. I had used the term medical sharia before when we talked um, you know concerning the mask and the compliance and things but um, what um, is there a threat there that that again th- through another channel that you know that we could see something like that um, happen? Um, Because they seem to be pretty effective at getting into places that um, can cause trouble like that, you know, constitutionally, you know, know, because that's a gray area with contact tracing right now. Define for me what you're talking about with contact okay well well basically um you know if if i get sick or if i have covid then then again it goes back to you know who was i in touch with where did i go what restaurants did i visit but they have to have boots on the ground to do such things yeah well i'll give you a good example that when i went to uh, charleston i went to the mosque there Never before have I ever had to produce ID. But when I went to the mosque during the COVID uh, times, first of all, they were only allowing a certain amount of people in. You couldn't stand around and talk. You couldn't, um, you know, I just didn't have the leeway to do uh, what I, the freedom to do what I'd normally done in the past. I had to give my driver's license when I got there because then they were able to see my my true name, had all of my information on my driver's license. There's a big danger in this mm-hmm. is because information now is being shared all over. Uh, information that you don't really want to get out, everyone has it. I mean, there is a big danger. There's information almost overload. There's so much information out about people. Sure. And Americans do not realize the threat we're up against with Islamic-based terrorist groups. Mm-hmm. They are very well-funded. They are very well-educated at their leadership positions. Very, very dangerous. They're not afraid to say that they hate America, they hate Israel, and they want to... And all their manuals are um, uh, have information about killing innocent people. Something I, I want to mention before we go, I know we only have a few minutes, but Sean, when I went to Imam Siraj Wahaj's mosque in Brooklyn, I came across an 81-page manual that they were selling from his bookstore, and it really talked about, essentially, how to kill U.S. law enforcement officers in America and then how to go underground. Mm-hmm. That was, an, and they were selling it for ten dollars. Can you imagine again? The double, it's a double standard. If a church were to have some kind of manual like that, what would happen? 
Oh, wow. That particular yeah. church. <laughs> Absolutely. But, but the first thing police say is then they will say, well, that's a constitution. That's a First Amendment right for them to have it. Now, it wasn't a First Amendment right for me to write a book about what I found out about care, but it's a First Amendment right to put a manual together how to kill law enforcement. And that's what Imam Siraj Wahaj and other leaders do. That kind of material is everywhere. Gotcha. What does the average West Virginian, how, how do they combat this and be within the, the con, you know, within the confines of the law? I think knowledge is power, but, but um, day one, once, they, once this podcast stops playing for them, what are your recommendations? How, how do we fight this? My recommendations, what I've analyzed, and I've done this for decades, I've done it for the government, and I would say the same thing to the government right now if I wrote a report, is that we are on our way to a civil war in America. That's plain and simple. It's going to happen. Whether it happens this year, next year, the year after, we have been pushed into a corner, the American people, and both sides, you can even see and feel the hatred between the left and the right. Politicians don't mind even saying they hate uh, other they hate uh, uh, conservative politicians they don't mind doing that we are on the verge of a civil war in america what i could tell the people in west virginia or wherever it may be always do things legally ethically and morally try to always follow the u.s constitution but what you can do is we are have a pending civil war in america is to prepare your families Make sure you're ready uh, emergency-wise with food, water, your security. Take care of your children. Get involved in what's going on in your children's school activities. But prepare your families for a pending civil war. That's as simple as I could get it. I would write the same report except classify it secret or top secret if I was still with the government. That would be my conclusion. been studying and researching and there's no way out of it there's going to be a civil war in america and even the great you know rush limbaugh started talking about that a potential civil war uh, and people that we would have never thought about saying such thing we would have laughed five and ten years ago hannity and tucker and other people have talked about a pending civil war well that would be my conclusion is what americans are facing there's no way out of it. You can only talk so much. You can only negotiate so much. American patriots are not going to allow this country to be taken over. No one wants a war, but as looking at it from paper and evidence, I don't see any other thing that can happen, so make sure your families are prepared. As a friend of mine said, and he's now considered, I guess, a, um, a terrorist, um, you know, he said... Uh, you know, I I don't want war, but uh, you know, if it if it has to come, let it be. You know, basically to paraphrase him with me, so that my children know peace. And yeah. um, you know, I, I I can't I can't say that that is uh, that that is a, a radical thing to say. Um, so you know, or maybe it's a radical thing to say, but it's a it's it's a truth. You know, it is a truth. No one wants it. I mean, I was. <laughs> I saw what happened to the, the young innocent children after a bomb had been exploded in their area, and I had to pick up 
uh, this one little girl about six years old her skin was coming off her body where she'd been burned in the blast the people who are hurt at war are children they're the true people who suffer no one wants it but at some point uh, wars happen it's happened for thousands of years and it's not going to stop here in America there is going to be a civil war there are going to be innocent people that are hurt no one wants that and we hope it can be prevented, but just take care of your families, prepare your families so that maybe they can have an America like we've always wanted. Dave, where do they, where do they find your book? Um, how do they find you? Um, how, how do uh, the people, um, you know, uh, I guess, reach out to you as far as, um, you know, downloading the affidavit, you know, whatever, um, you know, how, how, do they, uh, how do they find your work? Well, uh, the best way is, you know, if you Google my name, it's a 50-50 chance going to be positive or negative. But my um, only blog I have, the only organization site that I have, because I don't want to be, I don't want to be under anyone's actual authority to tell me what I can do, can't do, what I can say, what I can't say, is I've got a blog. We are not afraid. Dot blogspot. Dot com. And if anyone has any direct questions for me, they can email me at davegobbits at gmail.com. And my phone number, I, I don't hide anything, is 276-930-1636. And if anyone wants research in their area, any organizations, contact me. I do not charge for my work that I do. Uh, when I go do the research, the only thing I ask is if you get me down there and you throw me somewhere in a that has a uh, some kind of bed and <laughs> give me a little food for a couple of days. But I don't I don't charge for the work. I and then I do do an affidavit so people can provide that to the law enforcement and local politicians. Fantastic. Well, Dave, uh, you're a patriot, and um, I can't thank you enough for uh, for coming on and uh, and discussing this with us. And um, you know, if if you ever want to come back, it's an open invite. Um, you know, I, I I have really enjoyed this. This is uh, this has been uh, very eye opening, and uh, and I feel I've really only brushed the surface of it. But um, you know, it's. Uh, I hope it, you felt it did you justice, and uh, really. Well, uh, I, I think it was good, Sean, of what you're doing, and because when I talk about the, the, there are only a few journalists anymore with any integrity. I'm talking about primarily the civilian journalists like yourself, who are trying to get the truth out. Whether the truth falls one way or the other, it's just based on evidence and fact, and that's what you want to get out. You do have a local patriot there. Uh, Brenda Arthur, mm-hmm. who is is in your area, South Charleston, uh, a great person. She and a group had invited me to do the research there. So people in your area do have someone who's uh, really in touch with what a lot of the politicians are doing and thinking, and she's so active and. And I, I would recommend her as being a guest on the show. She is. That. She is actually. I'm. I'm ahead of you. She's actually on my list. I, I reached out to her, but again, it's one of those things where it's uh, one of those out of sight, out of mind things. You. Uh, you know, <laughs> the news cycle, the way it changes. You. You. It's like uh, I guess the equivalent of yelling squirrel back in the old day. <laughs> you know, you're onto one thing, and all of a sudden, squirrel. 
and yeah, uh, it goes a different way. There's many good patriots out there, and that's so that's a good thing. Well, Dave Gobbitz, I really appreciate you, and uh, I look forward to the next time you're on. I really appreciate you coming on, sir. Thank you, Sean. Yes. For God, for country, for truth, for justice, for the Republic. You're listening to the Powder Monkey Podcast on PirateInfoWars.com.